this thing that people think like will keep everyone safe forever is total fantasy. That's what the fantasy is like that, you know, this thing that we devised for uh, like a couple of decades that we thought like, okay, this is, this is balance of power. You know, it may remind you a little bit. And if you're an American and I'll ask other progressives this when they, you know, embrace a deterrence type thinking, I said, gee, it sounds a lot like the gun control discussion in the U S like the only way to stop a stop a bad guy with a gun as a good guy with a gun. Isn't that the same kind of thinking? Do you really espouse that? Is that going to work in every scenario? And when you're talking about stakes that are much higher in terms of how many, if you can quantify, like how many people would die from a mistake or an intentional a miscalculation in terms of what the deterrence type model is about, when you think about how many more poles there are in this multipolar world as more states continue to get nuclear weapons. When you think about terrorists acquiring nuclear weapons, when you think about newer technologies and AI controlling nuclear weapons, and when you think about all of the actual close calls that most people don't even know about in, in the hundreds of like ridiculously lucky escapes from Armageddon that we've had, it's just absurd. And when you think about the number of people that have actually died while we're saying we're safe... Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community, undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. When I studied physics and spent time in universities, I met a lot of Nobel Prize winners. Columbia Physics connected me to three. Other science departments led me to another one or two. The business school led me to another. Seth Sheldon and ICANN, that is the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, won the 2017 Nobel Prize for its work to draw, this is quoting the award, for its work to draw attention to the catastrophic humanitarian consequences of any use of nuclear weapons and for its groundbreaking efforts to achieve a treaty-based prohibition of such weapons. Their goal is a UN treaty, like the one to ban landmines for nuclear, but for nuclear weapons. After forming in 2007, about two years ago, they achieved, with the help of many others, the Treaty on the Prohibition for Nuclear Weapons. It was adopted by the United Nations by a vote of 122 to 1, and the treaty, which prohibits the development, testing, production, manufacture, acquisition, possession, stockpiling, transfer, use, and threatened use of nuclear weapons or other expl nuclear explosive devices, will enter into force once it has been ratified by 50 nations. It's a very interesting approach. I wanted to bring someone on who is working on something many want. I don't know anyone who wants nuclear annihilation, but many don't see how to make it happen. It feels like something only the experts can do. I hope you'll listen carefully to what Seth says. I picked up something I hadn't expected, which was a new frame for how to view nuclear weapons. It's not about the physics or engineering, and I figure I know a fair amount about game theory and negotiation and things like that. But while global thermonuclear war is beyond just a complex chess game, my frame still saw it that way. I disagreed with people who said that nuclear weapons, through mutually assured destruction, created what peace we've seen since World War II. But Seth suggested a different perspective than negotiation or brinksmanship. He doesn't look at the situation like two superpowers or even a moderate number of nuclear states. I'll let him describe it, but his view suggests different strategies than I would have come up with, 
and makes important different players. So let's hear a new, well, I should say new to me, but I hadn't heard it anywhere before. Maybe it's not new to you, but this new view on abolishing nuclear weapons. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Seth Sheldon. Seth, how are you doing? I am well. Now, to the listeners don't know this, but we've just been talking. Actually, you were making some distinctions of what ICANN does. I'm jumping right into things okay, here. Okay, okay. And um, it's, actually, I've been saying this. The A is the International Coalition to Abolish Nuclear Weapons? Almost. International Campaign to campaign. Abolish Nuclear Weapons, yeah. And it's subtle what you guys do. It's, what do you guys do? Oh, it's, it's pretty clear to us. I uh-huh. mean, it's, it's, we're, we're, we're working to ban the bomb and to make nuclear weapons in every aspect of their development, threatening, threatening to use them, anything along the life cycle of a nuclear weapon to make it illegal. And Okay, to make it illegal. Under international law. Okay. So you're working within the UN? You're working through... Is that the only way you're working, or is that the primary way? Are you also trying to make it illegal in the United States? Yeah. The, the idea is, well, the goal is elimination, Elimination in a manner that that reduces the threat of use, and we're looking to do it by the way you make most things not happen, which is to first prohibit them. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a society, we've you know since the beginning of since the beginning of society, when we decide we don't like something, we make a law against it, and then we work to make people conform to that law as best as we can. So that's what we're doing. Where do we do it? Yes, we do it. Uh, everywhere around the world that we can. And uh, the main vehicle at the moment for the work is the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, Mm -hmm. which was adopted in July 2017 by 122 states, nations, and uh, not the U.S. So the work is different in each country based on their perspectives on whether they want to ban the bomb or not. Mm -hmm. And what about you in particular? What's your role? I am the United Nations Liaison for... I can. So for the most part, these days I'm working with supportive states to get them to sign and ratify the treaty so that it enters into force as soon as possible. It will enter into force once 50 states have signed, I'm sorry, once 50 states have ratified it. Mm -hmm. And we have 23 as of today. So we're almost halfway. And you just said the date when it started, when you started collecting the first ratifications. Well, it opened for signature in September 2017. That's not that long ago. Exactly. And so 23 states, okay, I know why the United States would not want to sign it. Yeah. What's the challenge? I mean, I presume it's 150 different challenges. Yeah, it's, a, it's 150 different challenges, all, I think, emanating from a, a, a way of thinking that is that is very out at best outdated and you know and is not going to take care of us for the rest of time as humanity but basically it's it's zero sum thinking it's old school security analysis that says that uh you know and that says that if if we if if we don't have these civilization destroying weapons that we ourselves are insecure and the rest of the world is insecure it never really made sense, and it doesn't really make sense at all now. But this sort of zero-sum thinking that says that if we have it, we don't want to give it up is the real problem. A lot of this, I think, emanates from patriarchal-type thinking and structures and a lack of and, and a sense of connecting this sort of weaponry to power and status. 
So I'm glad you mentioned that it's, it's a, the mindset is, that's what you're working on. I mean, and a, a range of different mindsets, because that to me is like, that's why it's leadership in the environment. I'm not trying, like, I'm not doing compliance in the environment. Right. Of course, I like the idea of people complying, but not, that's not the main goal. Yeah. I mean, I think where you're going with, for me, where you're going with that is like, it's not like when you talk about law, you're talking about what can you compel people to do or not do. And when you talk about something like prohibiting uh, any behavior or any action, then you have to ask, well, how do you enforce this? And what does it even mean? And that's what international law is always has a challenge with, right? So when I think about this, it's not just about having some, it's, it's not about having some police force going around being like, you can't have this and how do we enforce it? It's also, it's not just about making nuclear weapons illegal, it's about making them irrelevant. And that requires a change in thinking and that requires real leadership around our norms and you know, behavior. Yeah, and it's hard for me not to listen to this. I'm thinking of what you're saying. I'm also at a different level thinking how, how one-to-one this applies, not one-to-one, but very closely applies to environmental. Like if all we're doing is finding people for polluting, then we're also going to have a lot of people who secretly pollute and we want people to not want to pollute and to make it like, like no one, when they're cleaning their baby's diaper, no one's like, Oh, if no one notices, then like, I'll not, not clean it that well. They want to clean that baby's diaper as well as possible because it's their baby. And if people feel that way about, you know, increasingly, I feel like that way about lots of different, like where I live and why I'm picking up garbage off the street all the time. And, but not all of it. It's, I'm not, trying to save the world myself, all, yeah. all myself. And you get it. You, you're looking at it that way. Does everyone else look at it like, oh, I just need to change my mindset? Or how do how did the different delegations from the different member, the different states react? Everyone, of course, reacts differently. But I would say there is a lot of shared thinking among supporter states for this, for this treaty and for the idea of abolishing nuclear weapons that it requires a shift in thinking to framing a discussion around humanity and not state interests as much, but rather human interests. And I think that's sort of a similar idea, right? Because we're talking about saying, you know, we have to start with the perspective that the humanitarian consequences of any use of nuclear weapons is in not in any in anyone's interest, in any state's interest or in any individual's interest. They have no military purpose. They have no real defense purpose. And that the only solution, therefore, as with climate change, is to incentivize the right behavior, you know, is incentivize us to make it safe based on the fact that humanity, the survival of humanity depends on it. Now, if you write there's no military purpose, there's no purpose on Reddit. Yeah. A lot of people are going to write back and say, this is what's kept the peace all this time. Yeah. And one of the things that's hit me a lot in leadership is that actually it's still something I'm struggling with is people who disagree with me. And you know what? Here, I'll put it this way. I had a friend, I have a friend who vehemently, he, he was against acting on global warming. Yeah. And people who didn't get it would call him a climate change denier. And I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. I'm just going to point out to him, you know, I'll show him some data. And I would show him some data and he, he like would find flaws in the data. And I kept showing him more and more. And finally, I sent him like the full IPCC report. And he, I don't know if he did research or what, but he was like coming back and showing like flaws in some of the data. And I was like, well, there's always mistakes. And he was like, he said, one of the things he said among many things was that um, a lot of times they, they go back and fix the data 
And I'm like, yeah, that's science. Sometimes, you know, you have to recalibrate the thermometer, stuff like that. And he goes, it's always in the same direction of showing more warming. And if it was just random, it would go in different directions. And I realized, I can't argue. This guy is really on top of this stuff. Like, he wasn't mm-hmm. ignorant. And to treat him as ignorant would have been backward. And with him, because I knew him so well, I would, at first I was like, this is going to be easy. And then I was like, wait a minute. Some of the stuff I don't really know. Sure. And then I was also, no one could possibly know all the stuff. Like, how did each instrument work? And how did all the experiments fit together and so forth? Now, as it happens, I'm happy to say that actually when I got him on this podcast and he started acting, he started doing things and enjoying acting on things. And then he started changing. But all this is to say, I was very pleasantly surprised to find that when someone disagreed with me and I thought I was right, and I still think I was right. Yeah. But listening to him and getting that, wait, maybe there's something I'm missing here. And there were some things that I got from him that I was missing. Like he pointed out that since time immemorial, since recorded history, there have always been people who have been saying, uh, the end is nigh. You know, follow me because we're about, we're, you know, Armageddon's at hand or something yeah. like that. And he said, this sure sounds a lot like that. Yeah. And from a scientific perspective, that doesn't really hold, that doesn't mean much. But from an influencing people perspective, if a lot of people feel that way, yeah. and I come to them with a bunch of science, that's not going to influence them at all. In fact, it may influence them the opposite way. So what does influence them? Well, I haven't gotten to that many people yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the strategy of this podcast is on a one-on-one level with a guest is to lead them through this process that I talked about. Well, sorry to the listeners, but I've, I've walked them through it a little bit before, but they'll hear, they'll hear it again. But then also to bring that to a large, to culture and to bring increasingly influential people so that people can hear influential people Experience what I experienced, which is that when I, the more that I acted on my, on my environmental values, however much that looked contrary to, however much I expected that to be deprivation and sacrifice, well, there was a, there was a transition period that was difficult, but then it kept, it's what I replaced it with was always improving my life. I want to bring that, that experiencing emotions of emotional reward, happiness, joy, uh, meaning and purpose and value, to experience that as a, coming from as a, as a result of in whatever way for that means is meaningful to that person, making the world cleaner, cleaner land, cleaner air, cleaner water. Sure. But by that, by that person's measure, because when they, I find that when they do that, they like it. Yeah. But you're saying though, that the, your challenge in the conversation is that you haven't, is how do you first convince someone that the action you're taking actually does improve the environment? Well, that- that's what I would have said before, but I, now I, I find that convincing tends to lead people to dig in their heels. Yeah. yeah. In his case, it was really much more listening. Yeah. And then eventually, he on his own started questioning his own stuff, possibly from my listening. I think possibly there was kind of like a, what was that thing with Muhammad Ali, the a little rope-a-dope? Yeah. I was just kind of like letting him tell me stuff and listening and not arguing back. In his case, I think that influenced him more or got him to a place where he could be like, wait, what am I saying here? And a lot of this is, to me, it's, it, leadership is, facts are important. Like I, I'm, I believe that what I'm doing is based in science, but throwing science at someone is often not effective. I totally agree that for a lot of people, it isn't. And for a lot of people, it's how you throw it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's approaching them where they are. You know, like you have to speak to the concerns and interests that someone has. When you're talking about states having these conversations, you know, not just individuals, but states, Mm -hmm. 
it is a different type of challenge because, you know, it's not just about appealing to individuals all the time and making the, the right argument, but, but basically uh, convincing them that they actually have, they want to do this and that they have a, an interest in doing it. Yeah, I would love to hear about that. Like, can you share, <laughs> don't name any names, yeah. but can you share the ins and outs of, can you share a story of something like that? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, there are, yes. I, well, let me think which one I can share. You know, I, I think a lot of states, when it comes to nuclear weapons that have worked on this treaty, um, they don't immediately necessarily perceive the benefit of them getting behind it if, for instance, they don't have nuclear weapons, they never think they will have them, they oppose them already, they maybe they're in a nuclear weapon-free zone, as much of most of the world is, and they're already obligated not to do it. So, you know, why would they take on this extra burden of belonging to another convention mm-hmm. and having to go to, you know, send, spending money on, on meetings and, and conferences that they have to send people to? You know, and so this is uh, always a challenge and sometimes it requires you know how we frame the discussion for them uh and certainly it's helpful to talk to to help people reframe in each case the the question of their security in terms of global security and their regional security and to make help them understand that it's not enough for them in their region or in their country especially to not have a nuclear weapons complex but rather uh, they should be uh, concerned about the, the global effects of any use of nuclear weapons. And a lot of times they'll, they'll realize this, and, but that's a good first step. Um, and then it will you know, be just about like, okay, so what are their other concerns? Are they you know, administrative? And then we have research that shows, oh, the expenses will be low. Is it, you know, and we can speak about like specific provisions under the treaty that that relates to them. I'm trying to think if I can give like a specific story, but, you know, I mean, like, okay, there are some that are dealing with the question of like how to interpret some of the rules under the treaty and being like, oh, we're very concerned about maybe how something is interpreted. So, you know, our answer to that is, well, perhaps you should therefore make sure you're part of the first meeting of the states parties Uh once 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 the treaty enters into force because, you know, then you can have actually a major influence in what it means. And they think, oh, well, that's a good, that's a good <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, but there's, there's things like this all the time. How much, what's the ratio of like frustrating to enjoying? Like, I'm at, it's got to have ups and downs. Oh, yeah. Like within, within a single hour, it could have ups <laughs> yeah. and downs, you know. I think it's enjoyable because, because for a lot of reasons. I mean, because it feels like, we're on the right side. People are affirming that all the time, both in civil society and at states. And it's frustrating because, you know, the governments move slow. You know, the possessor states in this case uh, are trying all the time to make us feel like we're not getting anywhere with uh-huh. it. You know, it's in their interest to be yeah, like, You're, yeah. this is meaningless. You uh-huh. know, oh, this is all we hear. I mean, including, you know, it's just like the, I think maybe like the arguments that you might get from people who are resisting climate research. It's like, you know, this doesn't mean anything. Like, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, stop doing what you're doing. It can be frustrating, but it can also be very motivating. You know, I'm inspired, like, all the time by the people I work with. These are people who have been doing this kind of work their whole lives, a lot of them, uh, for inc- incredibly 
little to personally show for it. You know, I mean, like it's not it doesn't pay a lot this kind of work. Uh-huh. And yeah. uh, you know, apart from a Nobel Prize here or there, there's not a lot of people telling you that, <laughs> that it's that it's that it's the right thing to do. You face opposition from so many, so many established people and organizations and 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 countries. So, you know, but watching them and how much, how hard they work on it and and how many, like, amazing successes they've had despite all that, mm-hmm. um, you know, is enough of a reward, like, just to be, just to be working with them. So speaking of motivation, I'm interested in two types of motivation, which I think are going to be relevant to anyone working environmentally is, and take a pick which one you go first. One is what led you to start doing this? Yeah. And it may be the same or it may be different, but what sustains you now? I mean, you said the inspiration from others. Actually, let me pick first. What what got you into this? What, when you think of this, what got you going? Well, I mean, I when I get that question, I think about the first time I thought about humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons was when I was a kid. Like, I grew up thinking, as many people who grew up in the U.S. think, and many still continue to think, that... We won the war. We won World War II because we used nuclear weapons and we were safe throughout the Cold War because of nuclear weapons. And I was like, okay, you know, I took that as 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 a notion that seemed somewhat sound at the time. And when I was a kid, if I can fill in the gap, because the mutually assured destruction, it was so great that no one would do it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, you referenced this earlier when you were talking too about like, of course, we can go through uh, if, if this is, I don't think that this is necessarily what you want to talk about, but like the, the arguments that people make about deterrence and about how that's, or what we refer to as luck-based security, you know, mm-hmm. that, that this is, uh, this is what kept us, kept the peace, you said, you know, that's obviously an argument we hear all the time. And, and, and I used to believe myself when I was younger and, you know, and I've come to see how wrong that is, first of all. But to your question most at hand, uh, I first began to see that and first connected myself to this issue when I was um, in the, like early high school and I read uh, the John Hersey book, the Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. And, um, and sort of, was, I remember reading it and it was the first time that I had to engage with the humanity of being on the other side of uh, an actual use of nuclear weapons. And it's, uh, you know, I don't know if you read this book, but... I have read, yeah, read excerpts. Yeah, well, it's, you know, this is a good, a good time to plug for, uh, for, for the publisher that it's, uh, well, I guess it's not really a plug because it's free. So it's on, the New Yorker published it um, for, I think, Let's for free for its... Yeah, I think they did it for uh, like the 70th anniversary, I think, of Hiroshima. I don't know if it, uh, of, mm, I don't know if it's serialized. I think it's just one piece, okay. one straight up. Oh, I think piece. originally it was serialized. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, it's now available okay. for anyone to read. But um, yeah, it tells the stories of um, people who were who were on the ground. I can't believe you and I both go to the same library across the street, so it's available yeah. at the library too. Yeah, you can get it there. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm sure that was the first time I. I really thought about it. And then I remember like working my way through high school and, you know, and, and history classes around World War II and really questioning some of what I was getting in our textbook. And then I studied it in like, when I got to college, I was taking a lot of classes around it. I wrote my thesis about the Israeli nuclear program. Mm-hmm. I kind of stopped thinking about it after college for a bit because as a lot of people did, 
you know, in, in the post-Cold War era, if we can say that we're out of the Cold War, I guess, but in the post-Cold War era, we, the, the issue went away for so many people. It didn't actually go away, but it went in people's minds. I've always wanted, yeah, people say post-Cold War, I'm like, is it over? There's no treaty, you know. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, I think that's a fair, that's a fair critique. And so then I, I, it wasn't something I focused on until, um, except like peripherally, but, but it was, um, you know, it, it was actually the election of 2016 that made me think again, like, uh, and realize at the time that how nuclear weapons were about to become, uh, in my, in my opinion, were about to become increase, increasingly relevant and hopefully not ever used, but I thought that with the new administration that that's what would happen. And I was right, wasn't I? I mean, so um, basically, immediately, I I engaged in this process to work on the negotiations for the ban treaty. And that's how I got to ICANN. And uh, I've been on on board increasingly ever since. So it feels like looking back, there's a long trend. And then there's a poignance that happened when I guess Trump would have his finger, he can press the button whenever he wants. Something like that. That like was that was that what happened in the election of two thousand sixteen? That is, did I make that connection effectively? That it it does for so many people, right? I mean, I think that we should all realize that very little has changed under Trump. In fact, I mean, in terms of nuclear weapons, we've we've been addicted to this to this complex since we built the bomb. And uh, and this problem has just perpetuated in terms of the way we we wield this power. It's you know, the big difference is that under Trump, more people are aware of it. You know, I mean, he helps maybe illustrate for other people who didn't think so before that there are no safe hands for nuclear weapons because we have always sort of pitched the notion that well, the U.S. is you know a responsible nuclear weapon state, which. You know, for us, that's, I think, what we've heard a lot as Americans, for people outside of the U.S., it, and hopefully increasingly for us, too. It is a pretty twisted uh, way of thinking about the, the situation, given that the U.S. is the only state that has ever used nuclear weapons in war, mm-hmm. right, offensively. So, you know, I mean, but that's, in any case, we will accept it if... You know, this is what helps people sort of see the problem. Again, the fact that the presidential has sole sole authority over launch, the fact that, you know, we threaten to use these weapons with with some frequency in a way that highly increases the likelihood that they will be used. The fact that according to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists right now, which maintains the the doomsday clock, Mm -hmm. you know, this metaphorical sort of uh, analysis of how close we are to nuclear Armageddon. The fact that they say that we are closer now, we are as close now as we have ever been, basically. Mm-hmm. We're as cl- the last time, we're at two minutes to midnight in their clock. The last time we were that close was in 1953 after we tested the first hydrogen bomb, the first thermonuclear weapon. And, you know, even just last, this week, actually, the UNIDIR, the UN uh, Research Authority on Nuclear Weapons, um, came out with a, uh, a conclusion that we are at an all-time high in terms of the danger of nuclear weapons. So if this is what people helps people understand that, that this deterrence sort of thinking that 
Americans have become so comfortable with, it seems. Well, I can sort of counter that too to say that there are so many who aren't. But as a state, this is we've embraced this this deterrence type thinking for so long, and it is uh, a horrible fallacy. And if we continue along this path, the experts have no doubt that we will we will annihilate each other. That's kind of hard to respond to. Well, but uh, now there's something that you said. There's this kind of we've become inured to it. And did this also affect you? It didn't, you saying it makes me think about it. When I was a kid, I think I was in junior high when the day after was on TV and it was a big deal. Like they were like parents consider not letting your children watch this. It could affect them for their whole lives. And I watched it and it made a big impression on me. Yeah. And then I remember, I think it was when I watched the movie Terminator two, there's a scene where there's a nuclear war and I remember watching and being like, wait a minute, there was no warning. There was no telling. There was like, this is presented like it's regular. And now it's on TV. And I feel like I was part of a generation where, okay, in my generation, it was like, this is serious. Yeah. And now it's like, not serious. I don't, I don't know how to put it. It's, it's like, a cultural, this is a cultural thing, right? And, uh, you know, I rewatched The Day After recently too. But it's like... A, Terrible movie, by the way. Like the yeah. production values are the British really, ones. Uh, that's called um, what is that one called? Uh, Threads. Yes. Yeah. But you know, after the the day after, I, I rewatched the day after, and I got when I watched it because um, I don't think this happened the first time around. I was so young, but like YouTube showed me like a you know you may also like or something, and it was it was a a, a video of. Uh, on whatever channel it was after they showed the day after, this was like a follow-up uh, roundtable discussion, mm-hmm. okay? So I think, I might remember the names wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was, it was I think it was Ted Koppel that was like, uh, you know, hosting it. And he comes in and like the camera zooms in on him and it's like, what you have just seen is not real, but, you know, look outside your windows, it's still there. Like this is how visceral it was for people to watch this, of course, back in the days when we had 11 channels on television and everyone was watching the same thing. And they had to be reminded that they weren't watching, like, real news, I guess. But at his, at his roundtable were, like, Robert McNamara, former Secretary of State, George Shultz, Secretary, Henry Kissinger, Carl Sagan, uh-huh. the, you know, the physicist, and Eli Wiesel. I think, is if I recall correctly. And, you know, that's how seriously people took that film, mm-hmm. that badly made film, from wow. my opinion, you know, in terms of its production values and what you could do with a TV movie back then. And today, watching it, it's like, whoa, this is like a little silly. Some of the, uh, but it had such a profound effect on Americans at the time that, that reportedly Ronald Reagan said, I mean, he wrote the filmmakers and sent them a letter saying that, that this is, uh, don't think that your film didn't have an effect mm-hmm. on me, because it did. Wow. And, and some connect this to Reagan pulling back on, on certain deterrence type, like uh, Star Wars and a bunch of like uh, nuclear weapons project, related projects for the U.S. And leading to, you know, uh, the first sort of uh, drawdown with, with Gorbachev at the time. So this is all kind of what got you going. And, and what happens when you, there are frustrations now? Do you still go back to reading about Hiroshima? How does it feel when you're doing this? 
I think it feels like we're doing quite well. I mean, so I don't, I find inspiration in the progress in, in large part. I mean, you know, I think first about, continue, yes, to think about the humanitarian consequences. I mean, it's, I guess it's, it can be easy to get inured to hearing something over and over again, but so far, it, does, it isn't. I think about all the things I love, you know, every day. Going also, it's not hard. And, and, then, and then you think about, like, what it could be. And then you think about, oh, but we have this great tool. We have this treaty. We have this, this growing support for, for abolition and for the ban. And we, we see a path forward, and it's, it's encouraging. I mean, that's some of the things that keep me going. But it's, of course, yeah, like I said, you know, it's, it is very frustrating to deal with, like, I spent this past week in D.C., you know, and trying to, because there are two now, there are two bills in the House that, you know, despite the policies of the U.S. government overall, at least some lawmakers and some legislators uh, have been excited to support the work we're doing. And so, for instance, uh, Jim McGovern and Earl Blumenauer just introduced House Resolution 302, which is called uh, Embracing the Goals and Provisions of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And uh, there's another bill, the Eleanor Holmes Norton Bill on Economic Conversion, that uh, she introduces every year, but this year revised to reference uh, support for the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And, you know, this is a great boon, you know, to see that there's there's growing support that we could point to. So I was in D.C. to sort of speak to other legislators about this and see if we can get support. And it's, yes, it's frustrating because, you know, even our, even our best allies are still in, in sort of arms control thinking and still thinking about, you know, the nonproliferation structure that we've been in for, for some decades now, but have actually backtracked on in many significant ways uh, in terms of our commitments and our, and, and, our, and our plans to push towards total elimination and, you know, these allies, supposedly, you know, Democrats who are pr- progressive on this issue are espousing arms control related ideas that were very much Republican ideas very recently, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, are you familiar with this, like this concept of like the Overton window? Yeah, it's, um, I keep seeing it and I look it up and I keep forgetting it. It's like... Yeah, I was hoping believability. You, you would explain it because I don't actually, but it's a, I mean, I think it's a, a notion about uh, that is basically supposed to capture the range of ideas that are tolerated in public discourse. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea is like or the window of discourse. And um, the idea is that like an idea's political viability depends on whether it's in this range or not. So all you basically have to do is shift the goalposts to be so extreme on one end, right? And then you've basically changed what you're allowed to talk about at all. Mm-hmm. It's like a reframing of the discussion. So it's sort of, in, in this case, I mean, it would be a real gut punch to see that, like, we've now in the U.S. moved so far away from talking about abolition that even the, the window has shifted to the point where now we're stuck, like, talking about things we thought we were, had been decided, you know, mm-hmm. and figured out a while ago. Or, and now we seem so extreme. I mean, we seem extreme for endorsing ideas that that Ronald Reagan endorsed, you know, that like many people who came before us and both as at the government level, at the military level, at the, at the academic level, all said that obviously we need to move, you know, toward abolition. That's got to be the only long-term solution. Mm-hmm. And now we're back to 
rel- what we would think to be relatively reasonable people who say, you know, I, I think I think we gotta you gotta keep this structure around for balance of power reasons. Mm-hmm. Like, where are you coming from now? How did this happen? Uh, how did we backtrack for for you in this way? The, the overlap with environmental stuff is so high. Of except instead of Reagan, it would be Nixon because you know because yeah, that's, that's where the uh, yeah, 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 yeah 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 of course. And also, I'm glad you caught me. Actually, as soon as I said it must be frustrating, you said, actually, I've got this great tool. I'm looking forward to all these things. I'm making progress. Yeah. And it, it hit me that a lot of people keep saying to me, like, oh, you know, you're so, it must be hard doing all the stuff that you're doing. I'm like, it's not hard at all. I love what I'm doing. Yeah. And yeah. thank you for uh, helping me see that, it, like, where they're coming from. Right. And... Uh, I'm well, glad to hear yeah, this. I ended on a down note, right? But I mean, like, yeah, we, uh, I should end again where I started, which is to say that w- we, are, we feel the momentum all the same. I mean, like, it is, there's no reason for us to, to be depressed. I mean, this is, things are going well. It's like, it's just that it's, it's difficult for people to see, as we do, how well it's going. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's the way and almost like the gaslighting that is around how other people describe what we're doing, you know, changing the reality, being like, oh, this isn't going very well, is it? I was like, well, it is going very well. What do you mean? I mean, like, they're just like uh, recently had this, uh, this conference, they call it Nukes Fest, quite horrifyingly, but like this, the Carnegie Foundation hosts this uh, conference about, you know, nuclear, nuclear weapons. I wasn't there, but recently, and they had a, a poll that uh, asked, uh, like, the attendees to evaluate the likelihood that our treaty would enter into force by, I think it was like March 2021. Mm-hmm. And basically, I can't remember the exact percent, but it was like the vast majority thought that it was not going to happen, like oh. almost no no chance of it happening. This despite the fact as we started, we're like almost halfway there, right? <laughs> and like, in and at this pace, if you can do any math at all, it's going really well. I mean, there's no way that we wouldn't, uh, get there, but they're like, no, not going to happen. And you look at that and you're like, whose reality am I living in here? Uh-huh. And then other people who have worked on this longer than I did do remind me that this is the same group of people who said we would never adopt the treaty in the first place. Mm-hmm. This is the same group of people who have basically like been cynical about this kind of progress from the start. And if anything, that you know, that's what we're fighting. I mean, is, is cynicism, like, all the time. Yeah. And I think that's probably true for both movements. And by the way, we, we didn't make this connection, but, I mean, given what you now, I, what I understand that you focus on, I mean, it would, it would be, you know, uh, it would be wrong of us not to say so, like, at some point. But these are very closely connected issues, right? I mean, like, nuclear weapons and climate change, these are the two has to be the two greatest existential threats facing humanity, both of humanity's own making, both within humanity's power to reverse. Yeah, I, want, I have to, yeah. there's global warming, there's plastic in the ocean, there's mercury in the, so the environment is, everything goes to global warming and it's one thing of many. No, so, you mean not cli- just climate change, but. Climate change is one aspect yeah, of, yeah, of, yeah. of the environment. So yeah. deforestation, ocean acidification, these are all separate things. Yeah. Extinctions, and so. I want to make sure they're all included in the environment. Got it. Yeah. Got it. yeah. But, your, but your, your umbrella term for that is an environment. Environment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I let people interpret how they want, but I just want to... Yeah. No, no, that makes sense to me. Yeah, it makes me also feel like 
before talking to you, I was kind of thinking, I have this picture of like this little person on one side and then like this nuclear cloud, nuclear, uh, sorry, mushroom cloud on the other side. And like one's bigger than the other. And, yeah. but now listening to you, it feels more like, um, it's not even David and Goliath. It's more like something where, I don't know, I'm wearing a shirt that has pictures of soccer balls on it. So it reminds me of when Germany played Brazil and I don't know, I don't know soccer, mm-hmm. but like Germany, it was like seven, one against Brazil. Like no one scores that against Brazil <laughs> in Brazil. Right. And they just methodically took them apart until they were completely demoralized. Well, I don't know if you're looking for demoralization, but you're looking for like a methodical step-by-step defeat. I don't want to use that terminology, but like teamwork that worked together and achieved the goals that the team was going for. And I think most people would not have expected it to be so effective. And I think about the environment, like, I'm like, I know that most people don't, it's not an issue for most people. And to the extent that it's an issue, they don't know what they're talking about. Like there's a lot of people who they honestly think that they're doing stuff that's beneficial to the environment by whatever your beneficial means. Uh, and they're not, they're doing the exact opposite. They don't realize it. Yeah. Uh, cause they think that like, Oh, I'm getting, they're getting more and more recycled stuff. And they don't realize that they didn't need any of it. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, but the interesting thing there to me is like, you know, you can do so much with people who think they're, who have the best of intentions, right? You just have to help them like to see that there's a they can make a they can make an adjustment and still continue to to help right yeah. I mean, it, it's it has to be very nuanced because a lot of times you'll get look I'm doing as much as I can yeah you now you want me to do more and a lot of times there's a rut that they expect you to be in and they will hear you in that rut no matter what happens and so you have to be very careful not to either not go near it or very carefully explain why you're not in it yeah yeah and or um, well I think that's a challenge for all progress you know, for all progressivism and all people who are trying to, you know, do, do the right thing is like, and help is, is that a lot of people you're, you're working on people who are already trying to do the right thing Mm -hmm. and, and you, you need them to do more. And there's a framing, if they view it in a certain way and they don't get out of frame, I guess it's the same rut talk, but it's, they see it a certain way and there's a different way to see it. And, they view okay. Let me be more clear. Yeah. There's a lot of people who view acting by their acting on the environment is a burden. Right. Yes, it's a burden they want to take, but it's still a burden. Oh. And so the more you ask, the more you suggest that they could do, or the more that they see that it can be done, it's more burden. Right. I'm like okay, I have to do it. I'll do it, but oh, it's a lot. Right. And the mindset that I have is it's a joy because for me, my big experience with it was with the food that you had. <laughs> was that it became really delicious. And every time that I make, that I act on environmental value, I expect it to go through the cycle of it's going to be hard, just like I didn't know how to cook when I decided to go for a week without buying any packaged food. Mm-hmm. And I, it was hard. And I had a lot of meals that were like steamed broccoli with salt, pepper, and vinegar. And I was like, I don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. And gradually that involved in what you ate. And now I think it's delicious. And so I think, when I decided to go without flying for a while, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew that it, after the shakeout of me struggling, if I said I want to live by this value and figure out how to make it work, then it's not what I'm giving up. It's what I would replace it with. I knew that it was going to be delicious, you know, not literally delicious, but something. And, and then after, maybe three, four, five months into it, I switched from thinking I can't wait for day 366 when I can fly again to, oh, maybe I'll go for a second year. Mm-hmm. And then in the second year, I was like, maybe I'm never going to fly again. And that's when I started taking sailing lessons because I was like, I really want to, like, 
Thai food in Thailand is my favorite food that I've ever eaten. Yeah. And there are, no train is going to get me there. I'm not going to take a cruise ship. Yeah. So I was like, all right, I'll take sailing lessons. <clears throat> and then sailing turned out to be something I really enjoyed. Yeah. And that's led to whole, I, I could go on about like what sailing has brought to me. Yeah. And it's not just like entertainment on the water, although it is that. And now I think I'm looking for more things that I could do to act on the environment because to act by my values, environmentally speaking, because I expect that it'll bring me delicious. It'll bring me sailing. It'll bring me all these different things that's that I've gotten so far. And people are like, why are you wor- like, why don't you enjoy life? I'm like, I'm enjoying it more than ever. I used to do the things that you're wondering why I don't do them. And I still can do them. Right. I like this. Like I, I like broccoli more than ice cream. Yeah. It's not, I'm not trying. Right. Right. Well, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, you're, you're talking about like reframing, uh, I think these ideas that we've all like, we were constantly reinforced in our culture and our society. Like, how can you not like ice cream? How can you not like flying? And I think that you have to, like what you're just saying is demonstrates to me that, that, you have to do it by showing people what they can have if they if they give something up or giving a chance to experience or maybe not even call it giving it up because that's a problem if you frame it those words but semantics are important but like the but but you know i mean similar i guess similarly maybe for us it's like you know and people people have been talking about this for generations but we spend more money on nuclear weapons than almost almost anything else in the world i mean the new Trump nuclear posture reviews has said not new anymore. It's a year old, but like the, the I should say the latest um, in, in 2018, basically calculate, like we think we're going to spend somewhere between like 1.2 and over $2 trillion on modernizing our nuclear weapons over the next 30 years. That's like, they, we can do a lot with that kind of money if we, uh, we can do almost anything that any, we can solve almost any other problem. We can make any, almost any other opportunity uh, that, you know, that certainly that progressives want to work on. If we had that money freed up from making weapons that already exist, that we can we already have enough to destroy humanity like many times over mm-hmm. that we want to build more. What is that about? I mean, there's all these elements to the to the plan that involve like things that make it sound like, oh, well, we're just modernizing. Or, and yes, there are some horribly outdated systems, like, that are, like as I understand, like, there's things like the people, the human resources and the, and the physical resources of what's, you know, still in our arsenal. Some of it is horribly outdated and should scare all of us. Mm-hmm. But, like, that's not really where the money is going. You know, it's not going to, for instance, changing the fact that I think some of these systems are evidently operated on like five inch floppy disks that like are, you know, have enough memory to hold like half a Jay-Z song. But, you know, most of the money is would be going to building new ones and making like all kinds of like leveraging all this new technology so that we can have a a, a more powerful arsenal. I mean, they talk about a lot of like strategic nukes and low yield nukes. I mean, there are some of those, of course, and and those are also horribly deceiving the way they talk about them because like we're still talking about weapons that have again no military purposes, no way to use these without destroying uh, civilians. Mm-hmm. For the most, I mean, there's like the 
the fantasy scenarios where you imagine like just an army in the desert and you use like a low yield nuke that and there's no other other civilians around but even in those kind of unlikely scenarios that we still have to think about the fallout we still have to think about radiation poisoning we still have to think about the environmental damage we still have to think about the, the nuclear industry that will the likely testing that we will be doing more testing of a lot of the things that we're building that will like if you're if you're an environmentalist everyone should seize on this issue as being of of paramount concern i would think like the the amount of damage that we do every time we we test a new weapon every time we build a new weapon and we have evidently under this plan like 80 new plutonium pits that are in production you know again like things that like the the waste from and the actual damage to the workers and the and the exposure of the the, the community it's incredible yeah, I don't know if you could see. Did my face let's just drop when you said? Yeah, yeah. sorry, I and, stopped because I was. Oh, it's like, uh, yeah. I mean, what you're saying has gotten me. But I'm speaking. About to, if I'm speaking to environmentalists, I, I'd like to sort of, you know, hammer that a bit, you know, and make that make that connection for people. Yeah, also, I mean, to me, the biggest issue is like I can't see anyone if a nuclear weapon is used. I can't imagine nobody responding. Like, I can't imagine one weapon being used. Well, exactly. And that, to me, was the biggest thing. But that is one of many things that you're talking about. And then I'm also thinking about how, I guess, the media is just tired of reporting to it about it because people, this isn't, it's been reported on over and over again, and people are, like, tired of it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And yet it's, I guess they say that, like, the ratio of how much stuff is reported on is is opposite with, uh, how important it is, and it's this important. Yeah, but you know what we don't get in all that reporting is we don't get a perspective on abolition. You know, we don't get a perspective on what the most of the world thinks is a reasonable solution or a long-term game. We just get, you know, in like whatever the, in the when we talk about Iran and the JCPOA, and when we talk about North Korea, these are the two ones we've been talking about the most in the media over the last years, last mm-hmm. couple of years, right? I saw that you uh, you wrote you wrote you'd written on North Korea. Yeah, because I was there a couple of times, and and the strategic. Yeah, I wrote on North Korean strategy and yeah. spoke on it at Columbia. Yeah. Ah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I'd be interested in your perspective, but I mean, you know, when we talk about North Korea, we never talk about it. Seems how much we've. This is a problem of our own making as the P five. You know how much we've uh, established a system where nuclear weapons are desirable. Why wouldn't they try to pursue them? They have basically, you know, found a seat at the table yeah. and pursued a seat at the table by doing exactly what the, the, the first five nuclear states did to get their seat at the table. Mm-hmm. And it's worked for them for the most part. It's working, it seems. So, and, and if it works, we're continuing to incentivize more states to pursue it. I mean, it's not to defend in any way any state that wants to pursue nuclear weapons, but if we don't frame it in that, I think in that way in the media, then we're already a, a giant step behind in the way we talk about it. I mean, we also talked for in in 2017 as they were building their program, like and getting up to the media was constantly reporting that they were so far away from having a nuclear. Oh, we're ten years away from having a nuclear mm-hmm. weapon. I mean, and then never correcting itself in that way, being like, boy, we we really underestimated things. We really misconstrued it. You know, why wouldn't they also look at or give at least a sentence to, even a dismissive sentence to the fact that 
you know, by the way, the rest of the world is exploring this approach to maybe say, here's the solution. Everyone, we, need to, we need to ban them for everyone. Mm-hmm. And then we can uh, approach North Korea and say, you know, I mean, we should approach them first. Obviously, I agree. We want to reduce the risk there as much as possible. But, like, we have a, the rest of the world can really engage with North Korea in a, in a way that's, that's more hopeful, that's more reasonable in terms of what we can do. I mean, it's a sovereign state. How are we going to stop them from from doing this uh, under these circumstances. Now, uh, sanctions, you know, that's the only language that we speak right now is sanctions. Mm-hmm. And that's not working. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, this, is not, this is not a reasonable solution other for, for getting through this problem. So when you, when you work on the U.S., it's pretty tough to get very far, it would seem. I, I, you must hear a lot of, well, you guys aren't doing it. Why should we? I mean, if the, yeah, because this is also, environmentally speaking, I think there's a lot of people who have this message of you should change, but they're not changing themselves. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's from a leadership perspective, it's like a disaster. It's like, it's very ineffective to tell other people to do something that you yourself are not yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. And coming from being an American, yeah. well, obviously you're not an elected representative of, the, of America. Right. Nonetheless, I don't know, do you... Well, I mean, this is one reason why we've realized and why I think this movement has found success is because it is actually being led by the non-nuclear weapon states for so long, for decades. That was the idea was like, well, we have to wait for, you know, the possessor states to lead the way here. How else will it work? We can't get anywhere unless the possessor states lead the process and buy into it. And now there's a shift in thinking. It's like, well, maybe actually we should have the way led by those with the moral authority on this issue, those who have never pursued nuclear weapons, those who think it's abhorrent to humanity, and try to work that angle. And so it's hard to have that. The U.S. can't say that to them. The Russians can't say that to them. You know, you do it first. We have done it. We, we've, we've signed on every, like, you know, every NPT-related obligation you have. We've signed the, the additional protocols, you know, we've doing everything that we're obligated to do. And as, as these states step away from a leadership role in, you know, in what, whether it's, you know, in, in environmentalism or in other issues as well, as people turn more, look more inward, these states can step up and say, well, we're going to seize this opportunity to take a leadership role and see if we can make a difference that way. It's, yeah, it's where the number of places the U.S. is letting go of its leadership, like abdicating its leadership is... Yeah, I think we could, we could lead in more areas. Yeah. Or, well, I look forward to taking that some of that leadership back. I hope um, that's what I'm working for. Yeah, yeah. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com/podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. I'm going to change topics maybe a little drastically. I, I'm actually trying to figure out, I'd like to walk you through the process that I've already walked you through of, of this, this, speaking now just about the environment. Mm-hmm. And now, normally I like to record it so that people can hear, but we had the conversation earlier, but maybe we can recap it a bit. Is, is I asked you what the environment meant to you when you think about the environment, mm-hmm. what you thought about. Oh, right. Or is that too drastic a change, change no, in topic no, here? No, no, this okay. is, it's incredibly connected. <laughs> so, but, I mean, are, like, yeah. so a few hours ago, I asked you what the environment meant to you. And 
Did you get a chance to reflect in, since then? Oh, no. But I mean, I can, I mean, what I can say that when you asked me the first time, of course, yes, my head first went to like, what's the dictionary definition of what you're talking about is like environmentalism means to me, like my immediate surroundings and, 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 and the, the natural world. But yeah, but what does that mean to me, you know, mm-hmm. is maybe what I think you're getting at, right? So I, you know, it's interesting for me because it's changed a lot over my life because I I'm, was born and raised in Brooklyn and like the, like the environment to me was asphalt, you know, uh-huh. for so long. So I thought that milk came from the store you know <laughs> like I, it's like i didn't even huh. you know, I, I had a no i mean I, it's not i was educated but like i just wasn't experienced uh-huh. and um so it was just like like probably i understood that on an intellectual level but like that our our foods came from somewhere green but or hopefully you know but like or somewhere else that wasn't asphalt but i just never you know it was not in my head i didn't have a visceral connection to it and so yeah the first thing i thought of when like i said like what is like the natural world into me. It's like, you know, it was like playing soccer on Saturdays in Seaview Park in Brooklyn, you know, and this giant grassy field. And I loved it so much. Like I just, like I was like a, you know, a farm animal, just like let out to run and just racing up and down this field. And it was just like in what I consider to be fresh air, you know, like it was, it was magical. And I, and I still, like in my head, it's still like a happy place for me, uh-huh. you know. And it was, you know, later on, like I became, when I left for college and then beyond, and now I've lived in like three continents and I traveled a lot and I've also been on, on, on ships and, you know, did some projects like sailing around the world and um, all kinds of experiences with the natural world. And now when you, when people say environment, that's what I think of. I think of like, being on a boat in the middle of the ocean where for like a week I might not see anything in 360 degree view other than more ocean, you know. And uh, that's like when when you spend a lot of time in New York City or in other major cities, you, it's like hard to even imagine that that exists. And then when you're in that space, it's hard to imagine that the cities exist. <laughs> now, you, the way you answer now, if you gave the same information you gave before, but the tone was different. And the pacing, like when I first asked you, it yes. took a few back and forths. True. So I, I wonder if you could share, if you could tell why you said it. Obviously, now you just said it, so it's easy to recap. Yeah. But also, also your the way you're speaking now. It I'm reading. You're enjoying what you're talking about. Yeah. And before, it was. When you got to talking about the ocean, when you got to talking about soccer, actually, now you, what you're saying about soccer felt like it was more um, ebullient, more joyful than the first time. Ah, well, I was giving you shorthand, maybe, but now I, I can't explain it other than, you know, maybe I thought I did, when you ask the question, sometimes you're like, is this a quiz? Like, what's, what do you mean? Envir- what is the environment? So I was like, maybe thinking that more, it was more about like dictionary definition. Maybe that's why I was slow, but um, no, those images, yes, I fleshed them out, but those images are always, always quite clear in my head. So I could pull them, I think I could pull them out pretty easily. What I'm working on internally myself here, yeah. uh, not here, but in general, is that I think people don't connect these deep resonant things with environmental action or environment. Like they'll, they'll look at, I don't know, pictures of, of beaches covered with plastic 
And everyone has, I believe that everyone has inside them their soccer fields, their being out in the ocean. And, and many, most people, it's a multitude of things, but you know, there are a few things that really resonate with them strongly. Yeah. And then they see an, a beach covered with plastic in the middle of the Pacific that is, you know, it's no one's been there. It's just washed up. And they, that connection is not made for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And actually on top of that, if they do make that connection, if they do not make that connection, but if they do share it, if you voluntarily told me about what, about your soccer right. growing up, it, I think you would know that the odds of me having a similar soccer experience are pretty small. And so I'd probably be like, well, I got problems too. Or, you know, you know, that doesn't really, if you tried to motivate me to protect your soccer fields from when you were a kid, I'd be like, I don't care about that. Yeah. I got my thing and you're not doing anything for my thing. Yeah. So your point is you have to connect with people's things. You have to connect with theirs. Yeah. I think people really love sharing these things. If they know they're not going to be judged, laughed at, you know, manipulated. Because you don't know why I'm asking in this case. Right. But in general, you can the likely case is not support. Right. It's very unlikely that you're going to get support for sharing these things, no matter how important they are for you. And therefore, therefore you don't act on them. Right, right, right. And if, if anywhere along the line, I say something like, you know, you should use us plastic, without any connection to any... Yeah. What, then it's like, I'm saying what's important to me, and it's, what's important to you is not it. And so I think it's going to even move you away from sharing those things. Yeah. And I want to bring those things out. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, I was kind of, I don't know, leading the witness a bit, but like my read of your of your emotional tenor in sharing it was positive. Yeah. Like, oh, I, this is something I, I like to share. Yeah, yeah. And and so the difference to me, the listeners didn't get to hear the first part the first time. And it's not like you were like, stop asking me these questions. It was right. just kind of like. Uh, it was a little took a little while to no, get it was to. Like, it. what are you getting at? Yeah, really, is part of it too. We're guarded when we answer questions sometimes, like because you're like trying to think about where I'm leading myself. Because yeah. people, you, people, people who are arguing or debating are always trying to like. Basically, we're trained to like be ready for people to like lead us into an argument that we may not want to go to. So we're 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 that may be why I think people are careful. Or yeah. I didn't know where you were asking about, so I was more or less forthcoming. And that's with me just talking to me, but I think it's also the case in general of if you were to act on some environmental value of yours that others didn't understand why, and then you explain to them why, and they didn't value that thing, no matter how valuable it was to you, I think you might feel disinclined to act on that. Mm. Like, do you know um, uh, Limits to Growth, the book? No. Okay, so the author, it's a systemic approach to uh, environmental issues. And one of the authors, I saw, there's a video of him online, and he's doing a, um, a demonstration of how, if you can set up systems to do things that act opposite to what you expect. And so one of them, he, he takes a hula hoop. He stands in the middle of the hula hoop, and he has four or five people stand outside of it. And the, the rule is that there's a, each of them has to hold the hula hoop up. They, they have to stick their finger out and rest the hula hoop on everyone's fingers. Mm-hmm. And he says, all right, in... In a second, I'm going to say one, two, three, and the goal is to lower the hula hoop as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. But there's a you can't if your finger comes untouched, if you if you lose contact with the hula hoop, then you you raise it back up again and you can start over again. So you can you got to move down, but not too fast. Mm-hmm. So everyone has to move at the same pace. Mm-hmm. And he says, and if anyone messes up, and we have to restart, I'm going to excoriate you. I'm going to you know you you messed up. 
but you know, the goal is to have it lower as fast as possible. So then he goes around and says to everyone, what do you, how long do you think it's going to take for them to lower it? And some people are like five seconds, some people are like three seconds, some people are like three minutes. Right. And, and so he gets a bunch of answers. And actually, what do you think, how long do you think it'll take to lower the hula hoop? So the, the deal is there's a hula hoop, there's five people standing around in a circle, they're holding, none of them are grabbing it, right? right. It's resting on their fingers and they have to lower it down, but all at the same speed. And if anyone goes faster, they're going to be, they're going to get made fun of. And start over. And yeah, yeah and they have to raise it back up again. They're going to keep going until it drops down. Yeah. I feel like this is going to, it never happens. Like everyone can, they can't even do it. So it takes, they get frustrated and they give up. That's what I was expecting. It goes up. Well, the hula hoop goes up. Wait, why? Because no one, well, I mean, this is my guess is that because they don't want, everyone wants to make sure that their finger stays, stays connected. I see. So that means you have to push a little bit up. I see. And then it goes up a little bit. And so everyone has to push more up. I see. I see. And so he's created a system in which you get the opposite behavior because ever, no one wants to be the, the right. various different ways to interpret this. Right. My interpretation, one of the interpretations is that no one wants to be the one who's the weird one. No one wants yeah. to be the one who's going too, if you go too fast, it's, you, I get pushback yeah. for doing things that I think everyone agrees that they're happy. It makes the world better by their standards. Yeah. Like I, I'm not flying and they're like, you're privileged to not fly and it's as if they want me to fly. <laughs> and it, it doesn't improve their life in any way for me to fly right. any material sense that I can think of. I think it makes them feel better about their own choices. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So I think that's part of the, in, in terms of me asking you a question, you're like, hmm, what's he getting at? Yeah. Oh. Is, is he going to trick me? But also independent of me, it's just you sharing with the world, you acting on something that means something to you. I'm sure you get pushback on the nuclear, nuclear stuff. Well, I mean, it does make me think of that. And it makes me think of how, uh, like, feminist thinking in particular has changed the construct of how we can approach this, this, this thorny issue. Uh, because, you know, I mean, leaders like feminist leaders, like, you know, the Women's International League of Peace and Freedom write about this all the time, like Ray Atchison. Um, Carol Cohn tells the story that I've heard through Ray Atchison about, uh, you know, about this, uh, military leader in a room, basically, who is uh, talking about, like, with other strategists, different war scenarios of dropping a bomb. And somebody says, like, is like, oh, under this scenario, three, uh, only three million people die. And he freaks out in the room. He's like, three million people? I mean, like, let's, like, not be so casual about that or something mm-hmm. to this effect. And he's ridiculed and ostracized and told that he doesn't belong, basically, because he thinks like a woman or something to this effect, right? I mean, like, and this is, you know, for so long, the, the gendered construction of this discussion has been like that, you know, that, that women are emotional and that they are, they are framing all of these discussions in ways that aren't strategic. And, and in fact, they're the ones we should be protecting because they're vulnerable. And, you know, and those women that have succeeded, because a lot of counter-arguments to this, people will try and say, like, you know, well, look at these women that have, we have women on our delegation or we have women leaders. And a lot of times, you know, it's, it's all, all these are, can be women that have succeeded in this construct. And that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about feminism. And it's sort of been, it's been a challenge to unpack that. And it continues to be because this is, you know, a, a framing women and feminist thinking as like, the, uh, as a devalued 
concept of where we're trying to pursue this like unattainable, unrealistic, or weak uh, outcome, right? And you know, I mean, the movement for humanitarian disarmament has like looked to shift this on its head. And one of the things I think it does quite well is reframe realism and real politique, basically, to say like you know, like, and we see it now. I mean, now that we're having success with this treaty, we've made possessor states and a lot of representatives of, of deterrence type thinking, like really emotional. <laughs> like they respond in ways that they get like, they get very upset, you know, like demonstrably upset. And it's sort of like, like, oh, we're sorry that, you know, that, you know, this is such an emotional issue for you. I'd like you to, you know, think a little more realistically and, and sort of flip the, flip the construct on its head a little bit. But also in the sense just that we've managed to I think, recapture and reframe what realistic thinking is. I mean, the realism and the, it should be that the, the recognition that this thing that people think like will keep everyone safe forever is, is total fantasy. That's what the fantasy is. Like that, you know, this thing that we devised for uh, like a couple of decades that we thought like, okay, this is, this, this is balance of power. You know, it may remind you a little bit and if you're an American and I'll ask other progressives this when they, you know, embrace a deterrence type thinking. I said, gee, it sounds a lot like, you know, the, the gun control discussion in the U.S. Like, you know, this, the only way to stop a, stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Isn't that the same kind of, kind of thinking? Do you really espouse that? Is that going to work in every scenario? And when you're talking about stakes that are much higher in terms of how many, if you can quantify, like how many people would die from a mistake or an intentional, you know, a miscalculation in terms of what the deterrence type model is about, when you think about how many more poles there are in this multipolar world as more states continue to get nuclear weapons, when you think about terrorists acquiring nuclear weapons, when you think about newer technologies and AI controlling nuclear weapons, and when you think about all of the actual close calls that most people don't even know about that are, you know, in in the hundreds of, like, ridiculously lucky escapes from Armageddon that we've had, they're just, it's just absurd. And when you think about the number of people that have actually died while we're saying we're safe mm-hmm. by the shadow wars that happened, which, you know, that happened during the Cold War proxy and wars. proxy wars. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, yeah, I'm in proxy wars. And when you think about all the, the people who have died um, from like nuclear weapon uh, testing, you know, like people from places that have like long forgotten long-forgotten names like, you know, Semi Palatinsk and, and Maralinga and Bikini and Mororora and Eker, you know, like these places where, like, indigenous populations were totally wiped out and environments were totally destroyed and no one could ever live there again. Like, it hasn't kept them safe, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, and, and all of this is meant to say, like, let's think about reality in maybe a different, a different uh, construct, I mean, and, and why shouldn't we when you think about what impossibility means, like, in any different, like, when people are saying, you know, when people are framing, like, what they think is, makes sense, uh, and, and, and how many things, things they think are, like, unlikely, like, if you, if you lived in, like, the 1980s or something, for instance, did you ever think that smoking could be banned? Like, like, and then suddenly, it was really, like, 
you just snap your fingers and like, I mean, it wasn't an easy process for the people who were legislating it necessarily, but like we legislated it, we made this law. We didn't wait for people to stop smoking and we were like, oh, we'll, 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 we should make this law. We'll wait for it to become smoking to stop and then we'll, we'll pass this law. Actually, I mean, it, when New York City banned smoking in bars and clubs, people were worried, oh, they're going to go across to Hoboken and go there. Yeah. Hoboken was trivial because everyone was going to New York to avoid the smoke. Yeah. I mean, that's, to me, that's like what the challenge of like realist thinking is in this sort of like cynical kind of, oh, you're being unrealistic kind of thinking is like, you're framing it that way. Like, and there are variables that your analysis is like not accounting for a lot of the time. And, you know, you could look at it in terms of like things that happened, happened to us immediately. Like how many people thought Donald Trump was going to be elected? Like, you know, four months before the election or a year before the election. But, you know, think about, like, what it would have been like to, like, live in, you know, like, the middle of the Byzantine Empire, which lasted a thousand years, or, like, uh, you know, slavery was legal for, like, millennia, for, you know, and and if you, uh, humans existed for thousands of years without any expectation that that would change, but now it's, like, it is, if anything was international law, it that that is, you know, opinio juris, that, 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 and while it's not totally eliminated, of course, stuff, obviously there are transgressions. Like, these transgressions are, are minimal and, and transgressors are shunned. And, and that's what it is to change the way you think as a, as a society about something. So I was framing a lot of what you said there, which was a lot, and uh, that it was coming from, and thank you, sharing what you care about can open up avenues that if you keep it inside, you can't. You can never get away from the old thinking or the old feeling. Yeah, yeah. But sharing it is hard because you're. It opens you up. To, it makes you vulnerable. Yeah. But it's not if that's what works. But if you don't, then you don't. If you don't bring out what's inside, you're not going to have an integrated approach to what you're doing. Mm. And am I? Is that what kind of you're getting at? Because you start talking about the feminist approach, right? And perspective, which probably would not, I bet most people would say, don't bring that up. Like, that's not going to get you any, like, no one's going to listen to you. I would guess. I'm not sure. And yet what I'm hearing is that bringing that up is effective. And if you didn't act on, if you didn't overcome the challenge to share what was motivating you, then you would never get to act on it. And if you acted on it, but people didn't understand why, they'd feel like it was really weird. Yeah. In fact, they'd probably think, oh, you're like that. And you are. And if you can outright say it, then it's more effective. No, that's true. And I mean, that's definitely something I struggle with in general. But yes, if, you, if you're saying like, oh, well, I can't, I can't frame it this way because I won't be taken seriously. But, you know, it really, if it needs to be framed that way, then you have to stand behind that. If that's what it is to you, and that's, you know, what, the only way to change the way people are framing something is to keep framing it the way that's, that it seems is the right way, you know. I feel like that everyone's got their soccer field and a lot of people aren't, they, they think, yeah, but Greenpeace says this. And the soccer field is so trivial in comparison to whatever, you know, whatever's on the front page of the paper. Because yeah. there's plenty of stuff on the front page of the paper about like global warming and, and sea levels rising and all that stuff. And if someone's like, if I talk about my soccer field, maybe people think I don't really get the real issues. Yeah. On the other hand, if you don't, then you're not doing it. It's never for yourself. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's got to be all of these things, though. You know, I mean, it should be all of them working together. 
I think part of what was has been successful again with the way our movement has reframed this discussion is that when you change it from and reframe it from people just talking about sovereign state interests and protecting these like these map borders then they they get to say things like well you don't deserve a seat at this discussion because you, this is all about like very complicated state secret game theory that that's you know we're working out at a very high level mm-hmm. and when you when you change it and you make it about humanity then everybody has something to say and then you can actually put front and center both people at the very very sophisticated level to talk you know we put forward you know like scientists and political leaders and medical the medical community to talk about the likelihood of use and to talk about the 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 fact that you know there would be no adequate medical response in the event of use to talk about the actual science of what happens when an explosion happens and then we also put forward like hibakusha this is like the word the japanese word for bomb affected people or people who have survived from hiroshima and nagasaki but also survivors of uh, other nuclear testing and nuclear development Uh, who can testify to you know what their experience has been and we put forward average citizens just you know it, always to talk about what is it about the world that you love what is what is as you say like i mean what is your soccer field or what is you know like what is it that you want to preserve and let's just illustrate the the flip side of this i mean what this kind of other thinking can how this can take it all away uh and you know how will it motivate you to act in service of of the things that you love. Yeah, it's about the things that you love. So after I asked you after you we talked about the soccer field and the and the oceans and the being on the ship where nothing was in sight for days. Right. No, I'm sorry, nothing no land was in sight. <laughs> There was ocean and, and I guess there were the people on the boat with you. Yeah, yeah, not many, but yeah. And so I asked you to come up with something and uh what did you come up with? Wait, what was the question? Actually, when I, I asked you, I invited you at your option to think of something that you could do to act on your soccer field, your ship at sea. Oh. And that also took a few back and forth, as I remember. Yeah. And were you also thinking, like, am I getting, like, is he trying to lead me into something here or? Wait, this is like, what is the action I can do to actually, like, further environmentalism? Yeah. um, Yeah. Oh, right. No, I I thought about that for a long time because um, I just honestly didn't know. I was trying to be practical and be like, what will I actually do and what can I actually What's a change I can make for? We said like a month at first, right? Well, I didn't say I didn't say time oh, okay. at the beginning. I, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. What? So I mean, you know, I'd, nothing popped right into my head at first, so I just had to think about it a bit. And so, uh, what did you come up with? You came up with a few things, and then I came up with a few things, yeah. But I think I settled on uh, okay. How about I like do something I'm almost doing anyway? But you know, that's maybe a cop out. But I'm not actually fully doing, which is to stop eating red meat. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't eat much. And I mostly just like when it comes to meat, I mostly eat fish. But, you know, and I don't even so it shouldn't be that hard. Right. But I haven't done it in a conscious way. Actually, you, you said it in an interesting way. You didn't just say I'm going to avoid meat. You said, as I remember, you were specifically going to there's going to be like there are times when it's offered to you and you were going to decline those times. Right. Sure, avoid it. Okay, yeah, not eat it. Not eat it is the point. Yeah, well, it's also, it, there was a human Both side of it. it's that... offered to me and when I offer it to myself, but yes. I think, yeah, my point was was more that, like, I think these are the times where I'm most likely to eat it is when, like, it's, like, the choice between, you know, like, maybe a, a prepared dinner or something where, and I'm like, I'm not going to not eat it. Someone made it for me. So if I add this to the commitment, then 
that's like perhaps the biggest change. That's yeah. It's well, for most people, that's the, one of the big challenges is they like, I'm not going to do X or I'm going to do Y. And then something comes along and like mom makes the mistake. Yeah. Makes them a steak, not makes a mistake. Their mom cooks a steak for them. And suddenly they're like, well, now it's family. Yeah. And suddenly that's a really high priority for a lot of people. Yeah, for or, sure. And so you're, you're, I guess, perhaps anticipating something like that might happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure it will. I mean, uh, I'm just thinking ahead about like the next few weeks, like what I'm doing. And yeah, that will definitely happen. Yeah. That's a real challenge for me because I also, you know, I think very practically in these about like a lot of things in my life and, and just like wh- what's going to be the easiest thing for me to do in this circumstance. So I think like I'm definitely not, I mean, I, and I, this may be a surprise if I've been talking about the work I've been doing, but I'm not like an idealist about almost anything. So mm-hmm. <laughs> meaning in this context that like, I don't like, if someone already made the steak and I'm like, oh, it's already on my plate, like we're either going to throw it out or put it into my stomach. Mm-hmm. Okay, whatever. You know, like that's definitely the way I uh, approach a lot of situations is, uh, is, is like if I can't make a change, then I might as well do the thing that's most convenient, you know? But like, so, you know, this would be a big deal for me. <laughs> that's probably why, one of the things I like bring, why I like to interview a diverse, wide bunch of people is that, People do things in different ways, but there's certain commonalities. And I want people to hear like the challenges. And I think people, I apparently make it sound like too one-sided. And I want to hear, I want a, a bunch of people coming on because some people doesn't work and some people work easier than expected. And some people, they move on to other things and so forth. So I'll be interested to hear how it comes out. And I, I like the second conversation for people to hear your experience of it. You yeah. know, the experience of a, this guy went to sweet. Oh, I got, can I ask you some Nobel Prize questions? Oh, yeah, sure. Actually, technically, I can won, right? Correct. Yes, I am not a Nobel Prize winner. So how does <laughs> that... Is, the organization, you, are you, the campaign is the winner. Do you have one? Uh, we, well, we share it, you know, oh. we're like the campaign shares shares the actual, you know, physical. So why it's, just they... a, it's just a big coin, you know, uh-huh. it's, it's uh, but yeah, we're, you know, it's, uh, it belongs to the campaign. And why did they, do you know why they picked the campaign as opposed to an individual? Well, I, I didn't get to talk to them. And oh. I know that they had um, different ideas. And I actually, I guess I have talked to some of them, but because uh, it's a committee. That, um, so I take that back. I have talked to them. And yes, I do know that there was a lot of, as there always is, a lot of thinking around who it should go to. I know, like some of the, there were other uh, groups of people, and it's rare to give it to groups of people. Normally, they do look to give it to individuals. Um, but, you know, the, uh, I think they really, the, the prize is aspirational, you know, and, and they really wanted to, to spur on the work that we were trying to do, despite the great odds, it appears, uh, of doing it. They, so, you know, they wanted to acknowledge the work that ICANN has done to bring attention to the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons and for the success so far with bringing about the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. You said aspirational, also motivational, I would think. Sure. And inspirational, maybe. Sure. And and uh, has it helped your work? Does it make your work easier, harder, more annoying, more fun? Or what? have you worn it? <laughs> all, all of that. And oh, you have worn yes, it? No, well, not to the, the whole held it. I just hold uh-huh. it. We don't have it like on a, on a chain or anything. Uh-huh. 
Oh, it's saying. not. It's not a. It's not a. Um, it's not a, a yeah, thing you wear around your neck. Exactly. No. Oh, no. I thought. I mean, it was. we could get a jeweler to put a hole in it. And uh-huh. do that, but I, <laughs> at the moment, it's just a coin that you know you can put in a box or something. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, it's it's all of. The, but apart from that answer, all the other, all the rest of that, what you said, it makes things. It's it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to to be heard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's an opportunity to speak to people that maybe didn't want to listen before or had a reason not to, they thought. And that's that's the extent of it. I mean, it was also money that came with it that we can use for the for the campaign. But mm-hmm. for the most part, it's a it's a way to to force people to listen. I mean, it's not to say that they will, mm-hmm. of course. And you know, like there have been so many situations where like people will have high level discussions around nuclear weapons and be like, you're not going to, you're not going to invite us to talk about this. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, <clears throat> we're, we do, ha- you know, we do have something to say uh-huh. and we do have some, some significant recognition for the legitimacy of what we have to say. So, you know, it's a way to shame people who might uh-huh. try to ignore us. And And there's another part of it too, which is to say that, this is a giant campaign, okay? It's it's there are thousands of people now who can who work with ICANN who can walk around and say we have a Nobel Prize, mm-hmm. and there are diplomats uh, who have worked on this treaty whose names aren't you know on the ledger for having won the prize, but they know and we know that they did the work of negotiating this treaty for mm-hmm. which we were awarded the prize. They have a stake in that prize as well. And and it's kind of brilliant in the sense that, like, as opposed to giving it to a single individual, other people can continue, you can continue to join, to sign up with us and, and claim a piece of it, you know, just by, and take ownership of the work and take reward in, in the reward. So, you know, it's been an exceptional experience in so many ways, and I hope that it continues to bear this kind of fruit uh, for us and, and is always a way to, you know, I mean, I won't... I, I don't hesitate to say it and to to show it when it's it's going to open one of those doors, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's like my you know it seems like it's not really my I would hope not my style to like you know lead with something like that. But now I will if I think that it's going to make someone listen. It makes me think of um, another guest I've had, Francis Hesselbein, who mm-hmm. um, presidential medal of freedom honoree, mm-hmm. and when you talk to her, she's constantly telling you all these things that. If it came from anybody else, it would sound like bragging. And when she says it, it doesn't sound like bragging. And I once asked her, how is it that you pull this off? How can you say, because she'll say, like, I know X person, I know Y person, I did this achievement, I did that achievement, I was in the White House and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, how does that work out? She goes, I say it when it adds a dimension to the conversation. Mm. I was like, oh, it's not about her. It's about her, the person she's talking to. It's about the, the conversation between. Yeah. And that's what I'm hearing. It's like. Well, not, I mean, there's trying. no other way to think about it in this case. I mean, I, and I don't know many among us who would who would frame it any differently. Like we could, any one of us could use it as we need to. But I think all of us understand that, like, we stand on not just each other's shoulders here, but you know, people who had been working on this for generations and and decades, you know, who aren't even lo- no longer with us, are part of this movement. Anyone who's ever called for you know, the abolition of nuclear weapons has a stake in this. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big tent. And so... It also connects with Alfred Nobel. 
I'm sorry. It also connects with Alfred Nobel because of the whole point of the Nobel Prize. Yeah, I mean, almost I believe that like the the majority of the awardees for the Peace Prize have been have related to to weapons and and uh, in some way or like certainly a bunch of them for nuclear weapons and. It does connect to his legacy very much as yeah. someone who created weaponry and then had a change of heart after after hearing about his, his, own, his, his yeah. own obituary. All right, so I'm going to wrap up because it's been a while. I, I, mean, I, I would be more than happy to keep this going for a long time. Yeah. And, uh, and we'll, we'll have a second time to, to, to talk. Actually, how, how do you identify? Do you say Nobel laureate, Seth? Or do you say no. Nobel? Is there, is I it, mean, I work for the laureate. You know, I'm the... I'm Nobel laureate employee. employee. <laughs> exactly. I mean, all of us should say that. And, and, and I, you know, certainly there's like, it's easier for media entities to look at Beatrice and Satsuko and say, okay, you're the Nobel laureate. And they'll be like, uh, no, but okay. I mean, if you need to say that to sell your, your, your piece or whatever. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what I put now. Do I say oh, Nobel no, laureate I, employee? I mean, if, if you're asking, then it would be, you know, Seth Sheldon, uh, campaigner or, or United Nations liaison right now, international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, Nobel Peace Prize laureate 2017. That's that's a big title. Okay. Yeah, well, I'll check I mean, with you before I put it up. Okay. You can take pieces <laughs> of it. We could say it other ways, but I, I would definitely object to being called the laureate for, you know, because it's, it's, it's so important to, to, to keep everyone understanding that this is like a movement. It's not you. It's, it's yeah. It's, it's a movement. Something yeah. greater. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's re- it's something greater, and it's it's really great. Let's end there. Is there anything I didn't think to ask to bring up, or anything a message directly to the listeners? That's an opportunity, right? Um, I would say uh, <laughs> yes. I'm sure. Like there is, I feel like I, I wouldn't want to leave this conversation without encouraging people to uh, to read the treaty and to uh, and to spread the word and talk about it and to. You know, all of this is what helps us reach critical will and bring about change. I think very much along the lines of the work you're talking about that you do. I mean, we need to reach everyone where they are and and speak about speak about have this conversation in a way that recognizes humanitarian consequences at the outset before like speaking about like the zero sum analysis of security and deterrence. You know, go to our website nuclearband.org and. And then look at our partner websites. Uh, we have many throughout the U.S., you know, and ask your congresspeople to support, like, if you're Amer- if we're talking to Americans, like, you know, the, the bills that support the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, like H.R. 302. You ask, we have initiatives like this. I can city appeal, like, and we're going to have one soon out of this locality, but we have basically like a dozen states, uh, cities and states in the U.S. so far that have... Uh, gotten their city council or their state legislature to say that they support the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. So advocate for that and divest your money. I mean, we didn't talk mm-hmm. about the divestment initiative, but like there's so much money that people invest in without even knowing it in financial institutions that that support the nuclear weapons industry. There's if you look at um, the Don't Bank on the Bomb project from PAX from the Netherlands, they have this. Um, this report that they publish every year that helps people understand where their money is going and how it's supporting nuclear weapons and how you can get it out. And we have divestment campaigns around the world that are like, that we're using, that the treaty, even if the U.S. doesn't sign it, I mean, this is something that 
perhaps cynical listeners would have thought immediately, oh, what does it mean if the U.S. isn't going to sign it? I mean, this is how we change norms. This is how we change behavior. Uh -huh. the, the, we're using these divestment campaigns to change the economic structure around nuclear weapons and the treaty because it has a prohibition on assistance and enforcement, is a tool that people can use and say, like, look, it's now illegal to invest in nuclear weapons under the treaty, and our state is joining the, the treaty, or we're seeing that international law is changing around the treaty, so we should divest uh, our pensions, our investment funds, our, you know, like, from, from nuclear weapons. And, and that's been a huge, you know, success. So people should look at that and, and try to support that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a gazillion more things I could think of probably. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of things you could do to support our work. But um, it's, it starts with, uh, I think, just the treaty. So reading the treaty. Yeah. Going to the site. Say the URL again. Oh, nuclearband.org. Nuclearband.org. Yeah. And I have to say that I could feel it happening in me as you're speaking. So I'm looking forward to following up there. Oh, good. That's exciting. Yeah. There, I mean, there's some things I was like, oh, obviously there's a way to look at it. And I was like, oh, well, there's other ways to look at it. And I mentioned some of them, but let's pick that up next time because it, now it's like been 90 minutes. Oh, okay. Uh, we might have lost some people. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, I mean, maybe you can edit. Yeah, yeah we'll probably edit some. <laughs> In any case, yeah. Seth, Seth Sheldon, thank, thank you. you very much. Hey, thank you for having me. I hope that Seth changed your view too, or at least showed other ways of seeing preventing nuclear war and how individuals can act on it. The overlap with the environment and environmental action seems clear to me. I'm glad that he also shared his personal side of his motivation to act on nuclear weapons and also on the environment. We all have these motivations. You have your version of his soccer field, for example. Acting on these things makes our actions meaningful and purposeful. It seems to me that a lot of people talk about how inconvenient actions feel acting on their environmental values. They don't get to do this. They don't get to do that. But looking back later, no one measures their life by how much they did what was convenient, but by how much they did that they found valuable and meaningful. I know it looks hard to start for those of you who haven't, but you'll be glad that you did. In any case, we'll hear how Seth's challenge went next time. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.